strange time of the day when actually there's more of us sitting in the front <laughs> of the room. And it's a, it's, a, it's a very tricky kind of job we have. I think we've run a lot of conferences. I think, and I think they've all been fantastic. I'm really happy with them. I think we haven't quite got the summarizing right at the end, like the concluding. <laughs> but there's so many kind of interesting and very complex issues that we just wanted to, I don't know, try and think about how to, how to what, what, what ideas should we leave with. And this is particularly potent, of course, because this is the very final conference that the project is going to do. So, so I, what I thought we could do is just, I will have, I have a couple of thoughts um, and wanted to take you very briefly back to sort of the, the core principles of the Relaxed Internationalist project, very briefly. And then what we could do is just basically go around the table and everyone could offer just a, 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 something that stuck with them from that, that they think the conference um, kind of helped to clarify or, or not, in fact. So to start, I think our conversations in the, the Reluctant Internationalists about language actually started right at the beginning of the project, like pretty much the first time we actually met, um, when we tried to find words for the phenomena and for the phenomenon we're trying to study. Uh, partly that was a question about this, this issue of terminology, transnationalism, internationalism, uh, where we kind of took not necessarily always the same sides. Uh, and other very loaded terms. It was actually quite difficult to find <clears throat> terms that were open enough, um, inclusive enough, but also precise enough and conceptually clear enough to, uh, to help <coughs> us uh, articulate what, what we wanted to say. But also we noticed right from the start there is no word for internationalism in, say, Hungarian or in, in, in some of the languages and sources we're, we're working on which is obviously immediately creates all kinds of uh, issues created for... So we've, we've been talking about language ever since, and then Bridget came and um, helped us to, to think about that much more systematically. So I think me personally and Bridget, I think us and, and as a group, we had hoped that thinking about language would help to shed light on what are otherwise invisible or obscure dynamics of internationalism, of international projects, transnational projects, and I think there's many examples from the last three days that have confirmed that. Uh, uh, that thinking about how people communicated in, in various international endeavors um, actually helps us to understand these endeavors themselves much better. And we can think of lots of examples. And I, I share Claire's surprise. We were chatting yesterday that uh, it is just quite fundamentally quite odd when we go to conferences or, or hear about people's work on international organization and they have never thought to ask what languages do these people speak to each other in? And this seems such a fundamental kind of part, component of how any of these international things get off the ground. <coughs> um, and Elidos and Dora's papers have opened up wonderful examples on that as well. Um, more surprising to me, I think, thinking back over the last couple of days, was how much the discussion of language or actually really communication very broadly uh, uh, conceived so it almost mirrored the conversations we had about internationalism. So it wasn't so much that one could help to explain the other, but that they're actually two uh, uh, almost distinct but definitely overlapping phenomena that each of them had uh, kind of suffered from conceptual messiness and uh, a lack of clarity and we're kind of grappling with, with terms and processes. So in a way, there's, there's, we can apply the insights from one to the other and vice versa. So. Thinking back to the, the beginning of the project, and I, we started with a number of core principles. The project was very open to begin with. I hadn't specified any case studies, which made the, the first years, I think, uh, particularly exciting because we really had to hammer out what we were going to do. I had sort of set the very broad remits, 
uh, and, and a couple of core principles, but the detail of that was really all in the case studies. My starting point and I, I, our starting point was to think about internationalisms in the plural. So to say, that, to avoid the temptation to just identify the one and only real kind and to dismiss the rest as just not relevant. Um, and as a project, immediately we were very keen to stop that tendency to treat discussions of internationalism as a necessarily progressive, liberal, Western uh, phenomenon and actually open it up much more and see what happens and actually see that as part of the history that we want to study, that there's interactions between very different ideas of internationalism. They're, they're competing, they're, they're, they're taking shape, they're being formulated in the same context. And this meant shifting our attention from this very narrow and very well-studied elite of Western liberal internationalists uh, to a much wider, much more diverse uh, set of actors who turn to the international sphere at some moments, usually specific time, specific, specific moment, and with, with, uh, to specific ends. Um, and this included in our project, for example, David's study of the, of the fascists, the Franco-fascists, and how they conceived of the international sphere. And among many of us, or the rest of us, a much more nuanced sense of the various kinds of connections under that big umbrella of socialism and communism and uh, the various motives and intentions and results of, of, of collaborations <coughs> under that. And I think that these, the, the, our intention that is immediately applicable to studying language or communication as well. Language, like internationalism, takes on different forms, different meanings, and different contexts. And there's plenty of examples of that from the conference. And we, I hope, are avoiding the temptation, I think it was voiced yesterday by Humphrey, to assume that the project of creating a shared language is necessarily or inherently liberalizing. Uh, it, it really isn't. So much of the, um, these internationalizing, internationalization projects and shared languages are about standardization or standard setting, and that is never without, never uncontested, right? It's, it's this question about the yardsticks, the standards, but also about the process and about who gets left out. Um, and we saw that in Carmen's paper, uh, uh, one of several very clear examples, I thought, um, of languages and this drive towards uniformity, how it's really about governance, about management, and about control. And that opens up a whole new discussion of, of, of communication, I think. Right, so it's, it's about internationalisms in the plural. That was one of the pillars of the project. Another one is, which emerged quite early on, I think, in the project, was this idea of studying the lived experience of internationalism. Um, trying very much, we were trying very much to move away from these very rigid histories of international organizations, top kind of institutional accounts, generally very top-down accounts, where the only voices are the kind of very senior politicians and diplomats, and open up to a much wider and actually so much more interesting source base. Anna's project was, was, was a, a particular kind of spur at the beginning when she's opening up case files and interactions of, of um, um, psychologists, psychiatrists, and patients, and just the kinds of glimpses you get of, of um, people's involvement with the international sphere from that. Um, and Anna and Dora and Johanna, all three of them, have written this up very nicely in the conclusion to our special issue last year um, <clears throat> in contemporary European history, this idea of the bottom-up internationalism. And of course, that requires a new approach to agency, which I think was another theme that came through a number of the papers. Uh, we thought a lot about agency, and we, as a project, started with that right at our first conference on agents of internationalism, where we focused on a range of interesting different agents, soldiers, children, relief workers, uh, collaborators, refugees, I can't remember who, uh, uh, children, 
And we had lots of other ideas which we just couldn't make feasible because we couldn't find people to give papers on them, like spies and uh, teachers and translators was one of the groups of people we discussed at the time and we sort of put to one side and said we'd love to but we have to fit this into three days. Mm -hmm. So it's really nice that we're in a way coming full circle with that. Uh, and on the lived experience, I was also struck that generations really matter and Dora really discussed that, uh, kind of opened that up in the, in the last paper. Um, so language is, of course, absolutely fundamental to this lived experience and uh, uh, to this much more powerful and fine-tuned model of agency. Uh, uh, right, so uh, third principal pillar of the project was about um, technical, scientific, medical expertise and experts. And I think there's echoes of that in this conference too. Um, First of all, of course, possession of languages in many of the case studies that came, uh, came, were, were discussed is a form of expertise. Um, and our experts, the, 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 the doctors that Dora mentioned and the uh, psychiatrists and the, the, the various health reformers are often multilingual and they're to a certain extent able to operate in a number of different national settings and that is sort of part of their identity, although we also need to uh, uh, contextualize that and question the limits of that. Uh, so I think it was right at the beginning when Justin Jackson uh, uh, talked about how surprisingly late it was that the United States recognized these army uh, translators and interpreters as, as knowledge workers, I think he, he said, and provided them with the appropriate training and conditions. That was a very striking uh, uh, insight. And uh, Dora, I think it was noted yesterday, how many of these languages and translation projects we've been discussing are about knowledge exchange and teaching projects. So I think putting expertise into that is actually really helpful for those of us studying language. We're kind of thinking about language and communication in that context. And then the final kind of pillar of the project was the geographic or the geographic remit, which was Europe. Uh, I was very keen to put Europe uh, uh, back into a literature that often uh, uh, left history of international, left the history of international that left Europe very flattened and very sort of colourless and and uh, very very superficial and very kind of lacking any kind of contours. Partly that was about in, involved decentering the United States as the kind of the major or even only benchmark of internationalism. So it's partly pushing back against the idea that internationalism is internationalizing U.S. ideas which we are kind of following our actors in, actually. This is what they tried to argue at the time. Um, and partly it's about thinking about different regions and different parts of Europe. And we were very keen from the start to put that stretch of um, southern, eastern, central <coughs> Europe uh, as, as a, a key area, um, uh, to, uh, basically the other side of the Iron Curtain, for those of us working in the second part of the 20th century, very central to the project. Um, and very importantly, to include the Soviet Union in this uh, perspective. I was very struck by uh, the very high density of Russian and Soviet experts in the room throughout the conference. I, yesterday, at some point, and I probably missed some, I counted 15, uh, which I think for a non-Soviet conference is unheard of, right? It's, it's so we're, I'm, I'm, we are very keen on the, the kind of integrating the, the historiography and the history and the source base of Soviet history into this wider context because those of us working on Eastern Europe notice that that gulf seems very artificial. It certainly doesn't correspond to the kind of historical realities that we're trying to study. I'm, I'm happy, I'd like to hear your thoughts on this, but I'm happy uh, that certainly there was enough interest um, among Soviet historians and that the panels were all very mixed. 
Although, of course, that had the result, as some of you have pointed out, that uh, Russian and Soviet projects featured possibly disproportionately in this project, so in, in, in this conference. And we heard very little about, as, as some of you mentioned, um, 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 African and Latin American and, and other parts of the world. Partly that's a result of our initial European focus and I think our very European networks amongst kind of you, you guys, collaborators, colleagues. Um, and partly it's also about kind of, uh, uh, the, the combination of bridges and, and our uh, set of expertise, but I think it actually was a very useful exercise for that. Um, yes, so I, I want to stop at that point and just let's see what, what people have to say um, and we can maybe draw things back together. Should we start, which end should we start on? Dora? <laughs> Go for it. Well, I, I wanted to just do two things. One is um, that you mentioned that um, today I was also thinking about the, the, the fact of internationalism, internationalist is in the area that it exists, internationalismus, internationalist will never mean a person. But they're both solely and only exclusively connected to the socialist propaganda, nothing else. And there's another word, which means liberal, like among nations, or between nations, but um, inter, yeah, exactly. But um, that, uh, that only exists in an effort like international organization or international collaboration. There's no now. There's no actor who is. There's no way to say it in that area, which um, uh, which is very interesting. And and, uh, and there are many of these. You know, and, 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 and sorry, I don't remember who raised this. Um, but I think uh, it was Claire that the, these same. Term, the terminology, and that, that comes out, I think, in, in, in the, with permafrost as well, that the, the terminology is so central that we, 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 we all too often, I guess, take it for granted um, that we think, you know, we, we, we like to think about it and, and, and take it apart intellectually, but, but when, they're, when, when our historical actors use it, we, especially in international settings where everybody is talking to each other, it's you know it's, it's important to keep that in mind I guess and, and this these conversations have shown you know very well why that's that's so important and the other point I wanted to make is how wonderfully it made the sort of an arc between the first meeting with Jessica Ochoa and this because there we mostly talked about who's doing the internationalism who are the internationalists where where is this internationalism happening and this was more of the how. Um, which, uh, which I think is, is wonderful, and it does show the, the centrality of these actors, like to, to look at these actors and not, and not to, to look beyond their institutions and the leadership, and, and to, to actually look at the, the people who are talking to each other or watching films um, and, and buses and, and so on, because that's, <laughs> I think that's, that's where, where, where it's, it's happening, and that can then reveal <coughs> Very otherwise, you know, um, invisible or, or inaudible. Or, um, that is. <laughs> Auto propaganda. Did we all learn a word today? <laughs> I actually, um, for my comments, I wanted to begin with something that Alador had emphasized in his paper because it struck me that it took us three days for someone to say flatly and openly, learning a foreign language takes time and it's very hard, right? <laughs> Everyone in this room knows that, right? But it's also the kind of undercurrent of most of the things that we've 
we've talked about the past three days. Um, and this goes back to the kind of original idea behind, you know, this, what was originally envisioned as a symposium that became a conference. Um, while I was kind of early into my diving into study of internationalism, transnationalism, there still seems to be some ambiguity in the, in the historiography about where we all stand on the terminology. But the, the literature that was emerging is so exciting, but it seemed to me that everyone was just taking for granted that when these international projects were being launched and engaged with, that, everything, that they were, these, these things were just being communicated and, and language was just assumed that it was um, up and running. And one of the things that came out so nicely, I think, over the past three days is just the messiness, right? Which is a word that we used a few times and, and the murkiness of these international uh, moments. And I did have a moment at some point this morning to um, also reflect on how, when we were devising the conference program, obviously a great deal of kind of thoughts and choices go into that, right? Allison, Allison, for example, is pretty much the only 19th century person in the entire, although Justin is there a little bit, so. Um, but take it as a compliment, we liked your paper so much. <laughs> but it did mean that there was a kind of inordinate uh, burden on you, but uh, I appreciate you, you being a trooper. Uh, um, so I actually, as it played out, I felt that the panels did, the papers on the panels did work in really organic ways to one another. And I say that not to pat myself on the back, but just <laughs> as another way of sure. saying how dazzled I was at how, by how informative and, and how many connections were being made, even though some of us, one of us is in the 19th century, most of us are in the 20th century, and that we're working in these different times and different places. But I did take a moment just kind of quiet, quietly to think about how now that all of our papers have been given, how that we could reimagine the conference program from some of the themes that emerged only in our conversations and only in the articulations of the papers themselves. So I'm not gonna do all of my roadmap, but I just wanted to highlight a few ways that we could think about how these, these papers reverberated and, and moved back um, and forth with one another. Um, it came out very clearly, right? Um, and I think of several papers in particular, Carmen's paper, Sebastian's paper, Allison's paper, to think about language as a tool in a kind of, um, not in a flat sense, right? But in a very real world sense, again, going back and trying to understand the lived experiences of internationalism. Uh, we also had reason to talk about language much more broadly in terms of vocabularies, vocabularies of transnational solidarities and meaning making that could happen across all different types of ideological borders, national borders. Um, and other borders as well. But we were also talking about language as a type of space and um, in a very, I think, conceptually productive way, right? And oftentimes when we were talking about language as a space, it emerged that we were talking about language as offering people and agents with their various concerns and their various limitations, their various dilemmas, but also their various opportunities as kind of using language as a, an opportunity to act within a liminal space, right? Trying to mediate, trying to know, negotiate. Um, in Jocelyn's paper, right, to kind of robustly go after a, a well-fought conflict, right, that, that meant a great deal. And um, I also thought about how, and this is kind of like the, as you've probably picked up on over three days, I'm a fount of poor jokes, but I, I, <laughs> I always kind of jokingly thought about how, you know, the reluctant internationalists were very generous to taking on in the sense that 
I was talking about very eager internationalists, right? I mean, you're not going to find an internationalist more eager than an Esperantist. And, um, <laughs> but um, within this, right, within this kind of spectrum, eager internationalism, eager embrace of foreign languages of various stripes, grudging, right, having, um, having a foreign language imposed upon you given shifting to ideological terrains and all the rest, um, that there's, there's again this murkiness in this sense too of language as a dilemma, a burden, but also a site for all kinds of opportunity making. Opportunity making even for people who first experience the imposition of another language versus a burden or as a kind of um, imposition of hierarchical power. Colonial stripes, ideological stripes, all the rest. Um, language is a bridge, right? My, my, one of my historical subjects, Zamenhof, the creator of Esperanto. This was a phrase that he himself used, um, and even though that wasn't articulated in my paper, it came up at, a, at various times that we were thinking about language as a way to potentially bridge cultures and to bridge worlds, but also to bridge um, temporalities, it seems. And this interesting notion of um, language is a mechanism Another word for tool, I guess, but a, a mechanism for cultural training or cultural re-education. And that came out in, in so many papers, it, it could have totally re-imagined re the landscape of our, our, our program. Elidor's paper, Kat's paper, Dina's paper, Rachel's paper, Deanna's paper. And there are some other things that I wrote down here as well, but I think that for the sake of being fair to all parties concerned. I will pass we'll come the back. You'll have the last word anyway. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. I, I um, will be brief, and I'm thinking mostly at the end of the conference about the socialist theme, I'll admit, um, <laughs> and about especially like the use of text beyond um, sort of the, the ideological text or the propaganda text as a sort of catalyst for discussion. I'm, like Catherine's paper was just really stimulating in that regard, although I guess this is actually a propagandistic text. <laughs> but on the other, uh, the idea of um, sort of this question of how are the values and cultures and, and practices and behaviors of socialism going to be sort of worked out and discussed, and the use of discussions of sort of third texts that are not necessarily meant to be definitive accounts of what um, socialism will be, what the language of socialism is going to be, but the use of these texts to sort of as discussion points. And, um, and that those texts were very rich and, and multivalent and complex, and they were sort of by definition not meant to be definitive, but sort of showing the ways and fragments and montages. And um, I, I guess I, from that context, I started to think again about in my own research on the health resorts, how when Soviet delegates went abroad to Germany, they ended up discussing Thomas Mann's uh, Zauberberg with almost everyone they met. <laughs> and it was, you know, I saw in the text, you know, it was on the table of the director of the sanatorium. And what do they do is they discuss sort of how a socialist sanatorium will be different. And so it's a catalyst for this discussion of what socialist values will be. So I'm sort of now just thinking about these sort of slightly outside texts and the role they have in creating sort of coherent ideas of what socialism will be for the experts who are encountering them. 
Um, I'll try to formulate this coherently, um, but I, I, I have a point about madness and surprising, <laughs> uh, which cannot be this far. And, and, and I have a point about the uselessness of language, which sort of came out of, of, of these discussions, and it's really great. Uh, and, then, and Bridget gave a, a fantastic uh, kind of, a, uh, a, a, made a fantastic point that I can, so this, there's a juxtaposition between language as, as a kind of technical tool, as a, as a kind of machinery, right? Um, to, uh, simply help us get our messages across, and then we talked so much about language as, a, as, as, you, as you said, as a, as a kind of a worldview, right? As a particular ideological, political, cu cultural um, worldview that's very elaborate and, and in some sense bounded, right? It's sort of difficult to penetrate, so it makes it much more difficult to actually learn the language than to learn the grammar uh, or semantics. Um, and then this idea that is really interesting sort of came up most recently, I think, in Eldor's paper, but but in in, in many other papers at the conference that. This idea that if you share a particular worldview, if, if you share a particular sort of conceptual approach or, or a, in a political affiliation, you can understand each other beyond the language. Even if you don't speak the same language, you can you can get the messages across if you're anti-fascist, if you're if you're a, a true socialist, you know, an Albanian Chinese can be uh, uh, can be sort of disregarded. This too, and then I was just thinking and thinking in particular about psychiatric consulting rooms where. The, you know, you can speak the same language and there is absolutely no communication, right? And there's no understanding. I, I was thinking, what's the downside of all of this, right? If you if you share something but don't share a language, you can actually understand something. But what happens if you if you do share a language, right? Even if it's your native tongue, uh, if you you share sort of a usable language, but a, a kind of so different, so kind of worlds apart in your worldviews, in your conceptual approaches, in political ideological worldviews, or kind of backgrounds, um, then that 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 language historically. You know, in, in my own sources, right, uh, but also I think bro more broadly, kind of becomes completely useless. And and how do we go? How do we go about sharing a language which is which is completely then useless as a tool of understanding? And how 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 do historical actors bridge that? Um, <coughs> that cannot be bridged by simply picking up a language because that is that is that has already been achieved. Um, and that that made me, I mean, obviously, in in psychiatry. In, in itself, right? In, when you're in, in when you have a, a psychiatrist and a patient um, talking about complicated emotional and affective issues, there's, it's, it's often remarked that uh, many of those issues simply cannot be translated into language. And so the, the initial step is uh, it, it breaks down the first step, uh, even when they share the language. And now I'm, I'm now in my new project looking at transcultural psychiatry, which is, which is. Uh, an invent a French invention, I think, uh, sort of kind of post post colonial kind of Cold War um, attempt to uh, move away from colonial psychiatry and to, to think about I'm sorry for, um, to, to think about um, a kind of uh, these transcultural psychiatric c contacts in uh, in a more inclusive and less offensive and less racist way, right? Uh, and so in, in in that, I guess you have French, uh, well, let's say French ethno psychiatric transcultural. Uh, psychiatric clinics where where especially trained French people, ethnopsychiatrists, treat um, a kind of non-French, you know, arrive uh, you know migrants or the people who usually came from the former colonies, and they have a kind of special conceptual machinery to 
to, to cross these boundaries. Because the problem with colonial psychiatry is that when you look at the sources, that the actual European psychiatrists never really spoke any of the local languages. So there is no patient file, there is no patient voice, no one's particularly interested in the patient voice. So transcultural psychiatry, they says, well, we need to have a common language. And even if we don't have, even if we do have a common language, it's usually French, right, or English, um, we need to have a special kind of, another level of translation, kind of anthropological level of translation, which, which will, you know, people who will be anthropologists who will know the cultures of these new arrivals, um, and who will, even though they share the same language, right, they, they all speak French in, in that room, um, but there, there'll be kind of another layer of translation, anthropological, cultural translation, conceptual translation, eh? uh, that will that will make this that will make this communication possible and much less colonial. And yet that works even less, right? And there is even greater misunderstanding because people who are anthropological translators, anthropologists slash translators. Um, in, in fact, kind of pigeonhole these very hybrid, multicultural, you know, border-crossing migrants, right, and immigrants, and pigeonhole them in, in this kind of tribal concept of culture that they have of, of non, non, non the, the concept that they have of non-European cultures. Um, and so that's that's what I was thinking. If we have transculturalism and multi and internationalism, and kind of people crossing cultures and, 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 and crossing borders, people acquiring lots of languages, right? People actually speaking uh, many languages. Sort of, um, can can it be that if that that kind of hybrid cult, multicultural identities and mentalities simply cannot be kind of captured in a language? And so this is very. Well, I can't really formulate it, but I wonder if, just like in the case of, a, say, a French ethno-psychiatric clinic, um, if you have anyone, everyone in the room speaking pretty much all the languages involved, and there is a common language, and yet people translating, people trying to understand each other, simply sort of cannot keep up. There is no particular language that can actually capture the, the kind of the multiplicity of identities and, and the, the hybridity of these. Um, identities and so constantly pigeonholing people in, in particular ways, and that's the same with you know people say in an East European country, psychiatrists in an East European country, which are almost a kind of, who are almost a kind of a class in their own right, uh, very very hybrid, very international, very multicultural, who simply obviously share the language with their patients in the same nation, right, um, and cannot understand them at all conceptually, just because the, in this case it's the psychiatrists who are very hybrid and who have kind of lost. Um, um, who uh, kind of lost the ability to perhaps communicate in that, that in that native tongue in a way that will be understandable. Anyway, so to stop the rambling, uh, just uh, just that's a sort of general point about kind of not being able to understand each other when we speak the same language and how how that kind of comes. Yeah, that's right. I think I was going to make a similar point actually. So I was quite interested in miscommunication because one of the mm. things I think we're interested in as a group is kind of when internationalism goes wrong and when these kind of lovely progressive international settings breed conflict uh, rather than, than harmony. And we talked about miscommunication in the, the call for papers and one of our um, uh, panels was, uh, was had miscommunication in the title and I think I expected there to be a lot of instances of miscommunication uh, in this conference. And actually reflecting on it, I don't think there were that many instances of kind of pure miscommunication. But actually some of the, the cases where people didn't share a language or didn't communicate very well were actually some of the cases maybe where uh, there was most harmony. So thinking about Nick's paper in particular, you know, mm. kind of French anti-fascist and Yiddish theatre groups, they get on really well, but they don't understand each other. Maybe because they don't understand each other. And that kind of, that made me think of a couple of, uh, of kind of examples of my Spanish actors that I look at and, uh, you know, generally people in Franco-Spain, <coughs> international settings, they don't have a very good time, they get into arguments with people, but there are a few cases where they do seem to 
enjoy themselves is where actually they're going to places where people don't share their language, where they can kind of have this vague sense of international harmony and brotherhood without getting into the nitty-gritty of disagreements. And the, and the situations where they have most problems are when they go somewhere and there are other Spanish speakers who, uh, as uh, uh, one of you was just saying, is it's kind of ideologically, ideologically opposed to them, and they can communicate very clearly how ideologically opposed they are. Um, and I think we saw that in some of these papers, right? So uh, in Mark's case, we have these kind of Jewish uh, internationalists who, yeah, sometimes they don't communicate very well, but generally they do have a shared language, they can communicate, but what they really argue about is which is the best language to communicate in. Um, <laughs> And yeah, I think we had you know, in Diana's case the problem with the, the kind of the, the Romanian uh, activists wasn't that they didn't understand the people that they were going to see. It was they understood them kind of perfectly well. But being <laughs> in these international environments made them feel more than communicating with other people made them feel more Romanian and more kind of antagonistic to, the, to outside cultures. And again, uh, that like I, I, I kind of I see that a lot in my kind of Spanish activists. Uh, but then I was also really interested in kind of what Jocelyn was saying uh, in this, this case of uh, a very uh, kind of fraught and argumentative international environment. And this kind of suggesting that actually this, the, these arguments aren't necessarily caused by communication uh, di difficulties. They're caused by good communication. People by, uh, communicating really well and then realizing that they have very, very, very different ideas about how the world is and how it should be. And maybe the suggestion that actually this, the arguments that stem from this good communication communication are the things that push push ideas forward and push plans forward. And I wonder if actually where internationalism goes wrong isn't when there's miscommunication, uh, it's where there's good communication, but maybe this <laughs> the good, communication, good communication causes arguments, causes problems, but maybe, you know, maybe paradoxically, that is how things happen and how things change. And that would be such a great answer to the, 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 the socialism and lingua franca. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> By the time everyone learned Russian, it's gone. <laughs> yeah. uh, so I'll just say one thing that dots onto that and then get onto my main point, which is that <clears throat> I'm co-editing a volume called Communicating International Organizations, and one of the main points that we're going to make is actually some of the most successful international organizations are the ones that fly under the radar and don't communicate to a broad public. And ironically, those that seek to communicate what they're doing to a broad public and garner support are the ones that actually do the least on the ground. So they turn to publicity when they have nothing else to do, and then they use that publicity as some sort of justification for their existence, whereas some others, like the Universal Postal Union or the International Telecommunication Union, when they fly under the radar, they actually can achieve a great deal more. So I think this is, this is certainly an idea that a lot of other scholars are thinking about. But then what came, came out to me from, from this conference was the, the role of translation that seemed to be in every single paper. So I just wanted to bring up five different uh, types of translation. And, and one of the things I really liked about that dialogue that, that Elidor brought up is it, it sort of had this sense of the Brestian breaking of the fourth wall, where you realize that all of the time when we talk about diplomatic summits, we're always making an error because we say, X leader talked to Y leader, Nixon met Mao, but that's not really true because Nixon met Mao via the translator, and yet so infrequently do we ever break that fourth wall. Even in the way that we talk about uh, diplomacy and internationalism, we use a language that completely aligns everything that this conference is talking about. So I was just thinking about five different uh, types of translation that I think came up. Uh, one was within languages, 
So whether it's from uh, elites to publics, but also different versions of a language. Even Wikipedia has that, right? It has English and it has simple English. So there, there are ways in which within one language we're translating, or for me all the time, now translating between British English, American English, and Canadian English. And they are all significantly different uh, in ways that, that people don't understand because they think I'm fluent in it. And then I say something which they don't understand, which happens uh, still quite frequently. Uh, the second is, is obviously translation between languages, and I think this conference has also shown the complexity of that. It isn't simply translating from English into French and, and back. There are double translations, there are mistranslations. And I was particularly thinking about this because I woke up this morning to an email chain from the fellowship group that I'm on this year, and we were working on the future of German-American relations, and there was an entire discussion about uh, the Trump quotation of yesterday where uh, Spiegel plopped out an article saying, Trump has said that the Germans are böse, sehr böse. And then those who spoke German translated back into English, and some people said it was bad, and some people said evil. And the discussion was, well, should it have been translated as böse, should it have been schlecht, is, is it evil or bad? And this entire debate on this email chain about how translation comes. And then somebody actually got into the idea of, well, if Trump said bad, should it be translated as booze, and maybe it should, even if the people theoretically mistranslated back into evil. And the point is that this is all speculation based on something that Trump has said in English. So there are all sorts of ways in which I think this, this functions aren't as simple as A and B translating back and forth between languages. Sometimes we end up with these weird situations like I just described, and this conference has done a good job of pointing out that difference. And I think also slightly highlighting that maybe we can think more about that, about the difference between translation and interpretation, which, which I think is really key, because Translation is written, interpretation is spoken, and tone of voice really matters when we communicate, and so do, does body language, and we didn't really talk that, that much about that, but I think it does matter what the tone of voice is that a translator, that a, sorry, an interpreter is using. If it's calm, but the person who is speaking is angry, that, that really has a different valence. Uh, the third of translation, I was thinking about the difference between universal languages and numbers because my paper was about numbers, but it's really interesting how there are so many attempts to create some sort of universalizing language like Russian or English or Esperanto, and it's always breaking down, and yet we have a pretty universal language of numbers, contested as it is, it's nowhere near as contested as universal languages. There's something about the hegemony of, of numbers and statistics, even as we critique it, that becomes pervasive through international organizations that just isn't true for, for language, which continues to be much more problematic. Uh, the fourth type of translation between values, different sets of value systems where a word like freedom means many different things to many different people, even within the, the same country, it can mean many different things. And then the fifth way I was thinking about translation was translation between uh, different audiences. I mean, this reluctant internationalist has done that by reaching out to things like teachers as well as academics. But I, I think, having now spent a year in a think tank, <laughs> that there are lots of ways that, that historians can also translate into policy. And it's been really fascinating to me to sit with a bunch of policymakers who continually talk about the liberal international order. They just say that those three words, it's just like a phrase, you know, the liberal international, <laughs> liberal international order. And one of the, the things that I think is so fruitful about the Reluctant Internationalist Project is it questions every single one of those things. It questions, well, was the international order liberal? Was it socialist? Was it international? Was it an order? And, and there's, <laughs> there's so much that this history contributes because it shows that this flattened policy view of there was a liberal international order that emerged after 1945, and in order to flop out that phrase, they have to forget 
that the Cold War existed, even as they celebrate that after 1989 there was a triumph of the liberal international order. So there are all sorts of weird things that are, that are going on here that, that this history, I think, shows are, are flawed versions of a past that's now being instrumentalized to understand the present. And this is what a project like this can bring, is to show that that flawed version of history is really problematic for, for the present. Oh, everything has been said. <laughs> what can I add? Um, I, I just have two very, very uh, quick points. And the first one relates to what Jessica started with. And I think it's, it's, it's just, it, I, I very much agree that the, for this conference particularly, and the project uh, more, more broadly um, raised is the issue of sort of who are the actors that populate our histories. And, and that, that it requires um, thought into, into thinking about that question, uh, specifically, uh, not letting, this is my take, this is just my, my position on it, but not letting the study of internationalism be confined to liberal actors. Um, and, and I think that one, one, so when this project started, of course there's a lot more, there, a lot more work has been done ever since, but I think this project really was on the cutting edge of taking illiberalism seriously as well. Uh, internationalism so often and so robustly in the literature is associated with liberalism and liberal elites and all these, all these folks that were, but, but in, this was the one project that it said, no, we actually, liberal states engage in interesting ways uh, internationally as well. And so, the, you know, the, this is also an opening for historians of the Cold War for, for a while, who for a while felt that they had, didn't have a subject anymore, anymore to, to reinsert themselves uh, and talk about bigger things, things like globalization, things like how do states reject certain features of the international system, but at the same time borrow certain other features. And in fact, I think that rejecting in itself requires engagement. So we cannot just be like, oh, well, North Korea has completely isolated itself. Well, it's not as simple as it has completely isolated itself. It has engaged with the world and it has chosen actively to reject certain features, all the while it is very much dependent on, on, on international war to sustain it. And so I think that this is, this is where we can really make that kind of, that, that, that contribution. And frankly, there's never been a better time um, to, just, you know, to really study the fragility of the liberal international order. So this goes back to your point, which is, so anyway, that, that's, that's all I have. Great, so I'm, I'm tempted just for a few minutes to kind of open the floor to what, what you guys think before. I think Bridget should have the last word. Yeah, Joseph. I am gobsmacked <laughs> to learn that this was about liberal internationalism because I, since I've only been to this one, and Bridget was saying, you know, was I surprised that there were so many? I assumed from the call that this was about the communist international. <laughs> <laughs> and, and maybe that's because I work on Latin America where internationalism is always about Marxism and liberalism is just called imperialism. Like, <laughs> we should adopt that terminology. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just sort of fascinated by the intellectual overview. <laughs> I, just, I just wanted to add one more um, translation to, to Heidi's list, um, which, which I think Anna um, uh, got to, but also um, it's something that, that I didn't talk about, but comes up if you would ask um, what, you know, about languages, meanings, and translation, any you know, historian in medicine. They would immediately go to this well, translating knowledge into practice. That's uh, you know, bench to the bedside, and and uh, and uh, science to policy, and that's you know, that's something that we didn't really um, uh, get to. But but I think it, it, it would bring up a lot of those 
you know, same language, different meanings, impossibility of, of communication, but also the, the, mm -hmm. the politics of, of that that could be, you know, one, one more layer to that translation. Dina, I think, did Dina, did you have your? No, sorry, sorry. And anyone else? We just overwhelm you with stuff. <laughs> yeah? <laughs> this doesn't apply to all of the papers, of course, but I was really struck by uh, looking at these languages of internationalism as performance, and in all kinds of different ways. Again, it's not applicable to all of the papers, but I just think, you know, I thought of myself personally, whenever I speak Russian, it's a performance, and I'm very inhibited, it's like you're going on stage. Um, but then there was the issue of the stage literally, and how there's a performativity that added an extra layer to your ordinary theatrical performance. The physicality of performance, with, and maybe that's not the right word, I don't want it to sound condescending, but the physicality of performance um, using sign language, for example, and then how it intersected, and this goes back to the issue of space, but um, with material culture, I was thinking of Carmen's paper and the table yeah. settings mm -hmm. as a way to kind of perform that unity um, within a certain order. Um, so all these um, layers of performance I found were very, very interesting. And I, I've thought about it myself um, with my current project. You know, are the women I'm looking at just performing friendship as agents of the socialist state? And I think there's more to it, but um, it's interesting to see all these variations of it. And even kind of playing along, acting it out, if you're not sure yet how you should translate something, say, in Algeria. So that play and performance as well. So I, I thought that was sort of an interesting underlying thread that came through. Mm -hmm. Bridget in particular, because really without Bridget this wouldn't have happened, and you know, fantastic collaborator and so full of ideas, and I think we learned a lot from, from, from your state and from your ideas, but, and I think you should have the last one. <laughs> okay, well, I was going to say that I probably in a couple weeks, I'll probably reach out to you all and gauge your level of interest if you want to pursue something, if you want to do a volume or something along those lines, and feel free to answer yes or no or maybe, right, but give me some time to, to yeah. get back but otherwise, I mostly just want to end on both a grateful note and my gratitude to everyone in the room. Um, also including, speaking of our silent meteors, <laughs> our, our podcasters, right? <laughs> Someday, somebody's going to be giving an academic paper about it. But I did want to end on a, on a, also on a lighthearted note, in the, also because I think it was both a product of our topics. There was a great deal of lightheartedness that came out in the messiness of these interactions. But I think we also had a good time. 
So I don't know if anyone else in the room knows about this guy, but there's a, <laughs> it was a scholar of German literature who kind of went renegade in academia and made a career for himself as a Twitter aphorist. It goes by nine quarterly. Do you know what I'm talking about? So I might be butchering this, but ever since the call for papers have, have gone out for this conference, I keep thinking about his one very witty um, tweet in particular, which was, a theory of language, a method of communication, and if I understand it, a curse. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, I take his point. I, um, I couldn't say that about our three days together. <laughs> Uh, wonderful, and thank you all that made the distance both short and 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 long. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.